Good morning. It's a privilege to worship with you on this Lord's Day. Uh, Occoquan Bible Church, my church, is for your, your congregation and that we're able to share and fellowship as partners in the gospel here in Northern Virginia. We're glad to be able to stand side by side for the sake of the truth. We're thankful for Mike. We're praying that the Lord would bless you in these months and praying that the Lord would give great grace. Some of the things I know that your church has been leading on and that many would be provoked to courage in holding fast to the truth. This morning, I will be preaching from Psalm 135, so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 135. This psalm of praise is an exaltation of God for who he is, for what he has done, and an expression of faith for what God will yet do. It calls us to turn to him and worship him. Psalm 135, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The eyes, but do not speak. They have eyes, behold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace, grace that elects, grace that redeems, grace that gathers your people. And we confess that you alone are deserving of our worship. We praise you for you are good and you are incomparably great. 
we ask that you would open our eyes to behold you, to see your gracious providence in all things, and that we would respond with worship as we see how you give justice and how you bless your people. We ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see you in your word, that it would be our joy to give our lives in worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If a child says, I'm going to do whatever I want, the parent or teacher would say, no. Uh, This child is seeking to cast off whatever authority is present. If an adult says, I can do anything I want, your eyebrow is going to be raised. If a preacher says, I'm going to do whatever I want, I'm going to say whatever I want, the mic will probably get turned off, the ushers will come and escort me out. This would be the shortest guest sermon you've ever heard. Um, If an employer says this, uh, this is an employer who lacks accountability, someone who's casting off moral standards. But for people, truly, the claim, I can do whatever I want, is false. None of us can truly do whatever we want. Preachers are bound to Scripture. The pastoral office is bound to Scripture. A gender is bound to biology as created by God. Today, in Psalm 135, we will consider God and the absoluteness of God. God who does whatever he pleases. He is completely other. He is not like us. As we look at Psalm 135, the psalmist is answering the question, why do we worship God? So today's psalm is an argument. The psalmist is building a case for why we should worship God. But as psalms are Hebrew poetry, how the argument is organized is quite different. In school, we learn if we are making an argument, we will present a thesis, we will add layers of evidence, and then we will present our conclusion. In Hebrew poetry, in the Psalms, for example, things aren't written in this way. Uh, The main point is often in the very center. Uh, Sometimes this is described as walking up a staircase to the top and then coming back down the other side. As we look to the center of the Psalm, we will then move outward, and we will see that there's layers of arguments that run parallel to each other. So I encourage you to look down in your Bible and look and see how this psalm is organized. Perhaps one of the easiest things to see from start to finish is the repetition of praise the Lord at beginning and end, which brackets the psalm. From start to finish, the psalm calls us to worship God. When we see Repetition and framing like this, it's a clue for us to look towards the center. In the center unit of of Psalm 135, in verses 6 through 12, we see that there is no one like God. He is incomparably great above all other gods. He is absolute. He does all that he pleases. 
this center section is then surrounded by two parallel movements, which move from praising God's name, you see this in verse 3, also verse 13, to then seeing God's purposes for his people in verse 4, and then verse 14. And then there's this contrast between God, who can do all things, verse 5, and the idols, who can do nothing, uh, verses 15 through 18. So again, the center section, verse, verses 6 through 12, where we see the absoluteness of God who does whatever he pleases. And then we have these two parallel movements which move from praising God's name to seeing God's purposes for his people. And then the greatness of the Lord above all false gods. And the psalm ends as it began with praise the Lord. We can summarize the psalm's argument like this. First, God is absolutely sovereign and free, doing whatever he pleases. Second, what is God pleased to do? God is pleased to elect his people and act on their behalf. A third, God is greater than all idols who are incapable of doing anything. And last, God's name is to be praised. Let us all praise him. As we consider the beauty of scripture, it's worthwhile for us to note that glorious truths of God are truly often better said in poetry, which is what we see here in the Psalms. Poetry is literary artistry and is far better suited to speaking about the splendor and beauty of God, the glory and wonder of God, and it speaks to the affections of our hearts. As we walk through Psalm 135 this morning, let's begin in the center with verses 6 through 12, and then we will follow the psalmist's argument outward to, to his concluding call to worship. So let's begin with the central argument in verse 6. Whatever the Lord in the seas, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. God does whatever he pleases. God is absolute. The language of God being absolute, the absoluteness of God, is language that has some, to some extent faded from church life. But this is not a new doctrine. This is a doctrine that the church has confessed throughout the ages. In classic confessions of faith from the 1689 London Baptist Confession to the Westminster Confession and continuing backward, even broadly in Protestant and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, the absoluteness of God is confessed by the church. In the opening paragraph of the London Baptist Confession, God is de described as being most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. And Psalm 135 is cited as one of the texts in that paragraph. The language of the absoluteness of God is helpful and important for us as we seek to understand who God is. We're going to consider a few different ways we should understand the absoluteness of God. First, God is absolute in his being. And second, 
He is absolute in his purposes and his actions. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God is absolute. He is absolute being in contrast to all other beings. He is absolute and infinite. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. He exists independently of all things, and he cannot be altered. Uh, John Owen wrote that God is absolutely first and independent, not existing from any causes. There is nothing before him. There is nothing superior to him. Uh, Herman Bobink wrote that God is absolute being, the fullness of being, and therefore always eternally and absolutely independent in his existence, in his perfections, in all his works, the first and the last, the sole cause, and the final goal of all things. And it is because God is absolute that we can say, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. God is utterly independent. He is depending on nothing, while all things depend on him. He is the first cause of all things. He is self-subsisting and underived. All else finds their being from him. God is uncreated, so all, well, all creatures and creation receive their existence from him. He is absolutely unchangeable, being unaltered by the things he has made. He is perfect and complete in and of himself, so whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Nothing can be added to him, nothing can be subtracted from him. He is unconditioned, it's he who conditions all things. He is boundless and unlimited, so whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And he has established limits and boundaries for all that he has made, so whatever we please, we are not able to do. God transcends all things. All things exist relative to him and are characterized by changeableness and finiteness, but God is absolute. He is self-existent and absolutely independent in his being, his purposes, and his actions, in his attributes. God is absolute in his attributes. His attributes possess the highest degree of perfection. So we think of God's absoluteness in regards to all of his attributes. His absoluteness qualifies all of his attributes. He is absolutely sovereign. He is absolute in his being. Second, he is absolutely independent in his purposes and actions. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. As we think about who God is and what he is not, it's helpful to think about him in terms of opposites. Op the opposite of absolute would be restricted, restrained, and limited. God is completely other than us. We are dependent in our being. Our plans and actions are shaped by circumstances and limited resources. Our power is limited. But God, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Matthew Henry writes, God has absolute power and may do what he will. God is absolute in regards to his power. Nothing can limit or restrain him. He is omnipotent. He does all that he pleases. No authority or power can thwart him. No one can render judgment over him. 
No one can call him to account in any way whatsoever. He is omnipotent. He is absolute in regards to his power. He is unrestricted and wholly free, doing all that he pleases. He is unhindered by anything. And this is what we see here in Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Consider verse 5 and 6. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. We see the absolute authority, power, and freedom of God. He is wholly free, wielding absolute power to accomplish whatever he pleases in all places, in heaven and on earth, in the depths of the sea, in the heights of the sky. God has the absolute right, the Hodge writes, the sovereignty of God is his absolute right to govern and dispose of the world of his own hands according to his good pleasure. God possesses absolute sovereignty. Kids, you ask your parents for permission. Parents, often we have to ask for permission for things too. God does not ask for permission from anyone. He does all things as he is pleased to do. There is no will above his own. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And the testimony of Scripture is consistent. We see this echoed throughout the Bible. In Psalm 115.3, we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In Isaiah 46, uh, verses 9 and 10, we, we see that God, is, again, is absolute in his purposes. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God will accomplish all his purposes. Nothing that God has determined will fail. All will be done. God is absolute in his power and authority. As we consider our plans, our plans have probably already been ruined today. Our plans come and go. The purposes of God always stand. Again, we see the absoluteness of God in Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself against God, he was brought low and humiliated. You may remember, he became insane. He's eating grass like a cow. After his humiliation, he recognizes the absolute sovereignty of God. In Daniel 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar writes, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does his will. He acts according to his pleasure in heaven and on earth. 
He's accountable to none. No one can stop the hand of God. His power cannot be restrained by anyone or anything. We see this in Job. Job 9.12, Job says, Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? No one can sit above God as judge. No one can hold him to account for his actions. It's utter foolishness to do so. Isaiah teaches us this in Isaiah 45.9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or you're... And Paul picks this up in Romans 9 as well, arguing that God as the potter has absolute right over the clay to form it as he will. He is wholly free. There's no outside forces that limit or constrain him. He can and he always does exactly as he pleases to do. It can be hard to submit to God's providence, but it is folly to chafe against him. There's many things that easily upset us and disappoint us as our will is not done. But we can trust God, who does all that he pleases. We must trust him, knowing that he is gracious, even if it is a bitter providence. We can trust that he is working for the good of his church and for his glory. Look again at verse 6 in Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. We see the universal extent of God's power. There is no place where God cannot do what he pleases. He does what he pleases at all times, in all places. So from heaven to earth, to the clouds, to the depths of the sea. Throughout all of creation, God does what he pleases. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every movement of creation, every blowing of the wind, the weather outside, absolute sovereign, God is doing what he pleases. And his absolute sovereign power extends not only over creation, but it extends over nations, over political events, and even more so, over the salvation of his people. And God is pleased to elect his people and to act on their behalf. God is pleased to elect his people and to act on their behalf. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, we, so moving with, this, with the parallel arguments outside of the center, we see that God has done what he has pleased in selecting the people of Israel out of all the nations of the earth. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. God's election of his people is a prime example of his absolute right over creation, over all the people he has made. Notice how the psalmist puts God's election of Israel prior to his redemption of them from Egypt. God is absolute over creation. He is absolute over the nations. He is working for the good of his people. His people from and through the death of the firstborn of Egypt, God redeemed his people from slavery. And we see his absoluteness through the Exodus in verse 8 and verse 9. 
he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. God's signs and wonders displayed the impotence of Egypt's pantheon. Plague after plague roll through Egypt and strike down their false gods. They see that they worship powerless idols that are unable to deliver them. God does all that he pleases. He brings his people out of Egypt. He brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, entering into covenant with them. In verses 10 through 12, we see more of the Exodus wilderness narrative as God strikes down nations and kings. Throughout the conquest of Canaan, we see God's absolute sovereignty as he chooses to use Israel to bring judgment on the world, as he brings his people into the promised land. It is he who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. God has acted upon his good pleasure to elect a people for himself, to redeem them from slavery in Egypt through the death of the firstborn, to bring them into covenant with himself. And then through judgment of unbelieving nations, he brings his people into the promised land. God does what he pleases. And we see it is God's good pleasure to elect to redeem, and to bless his people. And in the new covenant, this is what we see as well in Ephesians 1. This removes all ground for human boasting. This should be profoundly humbling. God does whatever he pleases. God will accomplish his purposes. He will do all that he pleases. And what is God's pleasure? It is to elect, to redeem, and to bless his people. No one can stay his hand. He will do this. He is absolute. He is independent in his being, his purposes, and his actions, and whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And we are not this way. We can't do whatever we please. Praise God. We cannot do whatever we would be pleased to do. We are profoundly limited, but our wonderful God is absolute. Continuing outward in the psalm, we see that in contrast to the absoluteness of God who does all that he pleases, the psalmist then turns to describe the futility of false gods, idols who are incapable of doing anything. We will consider verse 5 and also verses 15 through 18 as we follow this parallel movement on each side of the center. God is greater than all idols. In verse 5, when the psalmist first touches on this, he, he contrasts the exalted greatness of the Lord against all others. He writes, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Then in parallel, in verses 15 through 18, we see the deadness of idols. This is a stark contrast to the absolute of God who does all that he pleases. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. 
Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. If these verses are familiar, perhaps you might recognize them. They are also in Psalm 115, where the people of Israel are called to give glory to God alone, not to us, not to us, but to your name, to God's name be the glory. As we consider how these idols are characterized, they are silver and gold. They are made out of what is precious to people. They are the work of human hands. And their existence is contingent upon craftsmen. But our infinite God is absolute in his being. He is infinite spirit. His existence is not contingent upon any other. He is not made by human hands. He does not need a moment of time. He sustains and upholds all of creation every single moment of time. He is the one who spoke into existence the elements that are used and forged and crafted into idols. Idolatry is a rejection of the creator to worship the creation. As Paul writes in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, in Acts 17, Paul contrasts God to idols, God who is absolute in his being, existing independently of all things. God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Our God is completely independent from us. We are completely dependent on him. We have a wonderful, uncreated, self-existent, infinitely self-sufficient God. And from him we have life and breath in all things. What do I? They have form, but they but do not speak. They have form, but they cannot function. They cannot give wisdom. They cannot offer truth. They cannot give solutions to life's greatest difficulties. They cannot acknowledge the worship they receive from their creators. They cannot speak worlds into existence. They cannot reveal truth. They cannot offer hope or salvation. Praise God that we have a God who speaks, a God who gives us his word, a God who breathes out life. We have a God who is not silent, a God who revealed himself to us in his word and still speaks. We have the word made flesh who dwelt among us and is now seated at the right hand of God. Idols, they have eyes, but they do not see. They have representations of eyes shaped on their bodies, but they cannot observe their worshipers. They're completely ignorant of what goes on around them. Think of Elijah's competition at Mount Carmel with all the priests of Baal. But Baal cannot see. Idolaters can do God who sees, who knows all things. He is absolute in his knowledge. He is omniscient. He knows all things. Idols have ears but do not hear. Again, the appearance of function, but by nature they cannot function. It's a false and deceptive appearance to their worshipers. They promise what they cannot give. 
idols cannot hear the prayers that are offered to them. That which idolaters look for, they will never find. No prayer for mercy or help will be heard. There's no awareness of worshippers' need. But we have a heavenly Father who always hears, who always listens, who never sleeps, and who welcomes his children into his presence at all times. And we are invited to bring our prayers before the throne of grace with Jesus as our great high priest. Idols do not have any breath in their mouths. They are dead. They're incapable of expressing themselves. They're unable to give life. As God breathed life into Adam, as the Spirit of God breathes out Scripture and gives life to the church, idols can give nothing. But in verse 18, we see those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idolaters will become like their idols. We become like the one we worship. Those who make idols, those who worship idols, become like their created objects, dead and senseless. This is the promise of idolatry, death. Idols can only give silence, immobility, senselessness, and death. Idolaters can only hope to become just as mute, blind, deaf, and dead as the idols they worship. For those who worship idols, this is their sentence. The idolater will not receive salvation, but the idolater will die in his sins unless he repents and believes and trusts in Christ alone. Those serve the living God. And how good it is to serve the living God who has made us alive in Christ, more like Christ. And we are transformed more to become more like Christ. And we become like the one we worship. Even now, as we gather with the saints, every time we gather with the saints, the Lord works to sanctify his people. In contrast to dead idols, we serve the living God who does all that he pleases. And God acts according to his purposes. God does whatever he pleases, and he acts according to his being, and he will accomplish his purposes. For many, the absolute authority of God can be terrifying. God can do whatever he wants. No one can stop him. And the absoluteness of God is rightly a terror to sinners, to those who hate him. Unchecked authority in the hands of men is always a cause for alarm because we know that human nature is corrupt and human rule can become increasingly arbitrary and whimsical. But as children of God, we should not be afraid that God will use his power in any arbitrary or whimsical manner because God is not arbitrary and God is not whimsical. For God's people, the absoluteness of God should be a comfort of comforts because God will accomplish his will and his purposes. 
in writing on Psalm 135 and how God acts according to his will, Augustine wrote on God's exercise of his power. Some will say God can do whatever he wants, but we need to think a little more carefully. God will do whatever he pleases, and that's different than saying God can do whatever. God will not just do whatever. God will act according to his will and his purposes. Augustine writes, The only thing the Almighty cannot do is what he does not will. In case anybody should consider it was very rash of me to say that the Almighty cannot do something, the blessed apostle said it too. He cannot deny himself. It is because he does not wish to that he cannot do it. Because he cannot even have the will to. Justice, after all, cannot have the will to do what is unjust. Or wisdom have the will to do what is foolish. Or truth have the will to do what is false. We may not understand what God is doing, but we should trust him. God indeed does whatever he pleases. And when we are anxious about this, we need to be reminded, what is it that God is pleased to do? And it is God's good pleasure to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for the good of the church. Consider how we see this in Psalm 135. Consider God's relationship to his people in verse 4 and 14. He acts according to his purposes. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. It is God's good pleasure to choose a people for himself, and so he does. Consider verse 14. The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This is the good pleasure of God. This is what he will do. He has chosen his people to belong to him, and he will vindicate them, and he will have compassion upon them. This is the good pleasure of God. I cannot help but think of Romans 8 and how God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. God is absolute, and his actions flow from his being, and he does all that he pleases. He will only do that which he pleases according to his will and he will never act against his will. He always acts according to his character. And so we can trust him. He is absolute. He is independent in his being, his purposes, and his actions. And he will act according to his pleasure to accomplish his purposes. And it is the good pleasure of God to elect, to redeem. His purposes are not determined by us. Be compassionate to his people. God's purposes are not determined by us. His purposes are not determined by anyone else. They are not changeable or alterable. God is absolute, and this should comfort us today. As we consider the election of God's people and his compassion towards his people, the psalmist then, in verse 3 and again in verse 13, we, he looks at the goodness of the name of God. Listen to verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Again, in verse 13. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. 
the name of the Lord should provoke joy, for he is good. It should provoke songs of praise. How wonderful it is that God, who does all that he pleases, is good. So may we grow in enjoying him, in trusting him, in praising him, for this is our end. To glorify him, we'll be glorified forever. His name, his renown will endure forever. He will not change, and he will be glorified forever. There's no generation where the name of God will not be praised. And God will bring us to the new creation, and we will be with him forever. Moving outward in Psalm 135, one last time, this brings us to the opening and concluding calls to worship. In verse 2, we read, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. And then the climactic verses in verses 19 to 21, we also read, O house of Israel, bless the Lord, speaking of the nation. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord, speaking of the priesthood. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Speaking of Gentiles who have come to worship the Lord as well. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Bless the Lord. We have this repetitive and climactic call for all of God's people. The right response to the absolute. We're beholding him in Psalm 135. This is our right response to the absoluteness of God. God has elected and redeemed his people so that we might worship him. As we behold his glory and his grace, it should provoke our hearts to love and worship him. We have been formed and made to worship him, to serve him, to bear his image, and to see his glory made known. In contrast to loving and serving the living God, we have seen the deadness of idolatry here in this psalm. And we must worship him. We must worship the living God. We are called to worship him. For Old Testament Israel, as they sang Psalm 135, they looked and they beheld God, God who elected them, God who redeemed them from slavery through the death of the firstborn in Egypt, God who led them in exodus out of Egypt. God who brought them into covenant with himself at Sinai and who led them into the promised land. And these wonderful truths in the new covenant, let us look to Jesus. As we see Psalm 135 this morning, we can look at this text through the lens of all of redemption. On this side of the cross, we see the substance the types and patterns and shadows of Israel have come to fulfillment in Christ. And now we behold God who has elected his church. He has redeemed the saints through the death of his only begotten son. He has led the church in a new exodus out of slavery to sin and into a new covenant established by the blood of Christ. In Christ, there is a new exodus. And following the judgment of all nations, we know that Christ will lead his church into the new 
creation. As we look at our lives and our circumstances, as we're faced with hardship and suffering and disappointments with our plans, we need to remember God does all that he pleases. We need to renew. And it is God's good pleasure to elect, to redeem, and to save his people and to bring them into the new creation. This is the good pleasure of God. This is our hope for the church. God will do all that he pleases. So also, as Jesus comforted his disciples, in Luke 12, 32, he told them, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We need to remember what the good pleasure of God is. How wonderful it is to know this, that God, who is absolute, will do as he pleases, and that it is his pleasure to take us, to redeem us, to make us his own. There is no one who can stay his hand. There is no one who can pluck us out of our good shepherd's hand. There is no one who can thwart him. Death on the cross cannot stop him. What comfort and what confidence this should give us. What grace and what blessed assurance we should have. So let us take heart. Because whatever the Lord pleases, he does. As the psalmist calls for Israel to respond with praise, so we too ought to respond with praise. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Praise the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are absolute and you do all that you please to do. And we rejoice to know your good pleasure as revealed in your word, your good pleasure to elect, to send your only begotten son to the cross to redeem us and to make us your own. We praise you for the forgiveness of sins. We praise you for the great provision for us in Christ that by his blood we can be forgiven and we are adopted as your children. We praise you for the new covenant which will never be broken. We praise you for the eternal life that is ours in Christ. And we look forward to the day when Christ will return and all creation will be made new. We ask that you would strengthen our faith, that we would be glad to submit to your gracious providence that we would trust you as you do all that you are pleased to do. We ask that our love for you and our worship of you would increase. Amen.